Welcome back to the podcast. We're here with uh, Jordan Feigenbaum, starting strength coach. Uh, Jordan is currently located in Santa Monica, California. The People's Republic. The nerve center of Western physical culture. Uh, how far are you from the old Muscle Beach location? That was Venice Beach? Are you yes. yards or miles or... That's about two Four blocks. Miles, two miles? Two blocks. Two blocks. Two blocks. Yep. You There's get a historic sense of the history when you walk down there and yeah. to be admired by the women. Uh, so the, it's funny. My second day in Venice, or sorry, in Santa Monica, I was walking down on the beach, and it's nice out here. So I don't own any shirts besides the, this. Is actually these are the only shirts right. actually that I own. Right, and they just understand that at the hospital. Right. right. Which is their, their business has actually gone up since I've uh, been there, but us. Uh, so, I, I was walking down there, and uh, this, you know, this this man and with his wife, and the wife asked me, "Oh, excuse me, is this Muscle Beach?" To me, and I had just gotten there. I said, uh, "Well, it is now." <laughs> I'm not saying it's said. not Muscle Beach. <laughs> it is today. It is today. No, so there's a historical. There's a sign. It's like this is uh, the old side of the old Muscle Beach, and now it's ironically filled with like rings and ropes, like climbing ropes and other uh, shenanigans. And then da- further down the board. Somebody stole the- all the barbells long years. <laughs> Which isn't, yeah, well, who would steal that? You got to question thieves' work ethic, you know, because. Barbells are heavy. Why don't you guys just get a job? <laughs> right. You know. So, anyway. So, anyway, uh, instead of going off on a conversational tangent like we always do, uh, let me read the notes here. The notes say, ask Jordan about insulin and macronutrients. Okay, so. Fair, fair enough. Nick just held that up for me. It's my cue card. So sure. uh, I had an interesting conversation with Jordan a while back, and uh, those of you nutrient geeks are probably going to be shocked uh, that it came as news to me that protein apparently produces uh, a similar insulin response to carbohydrate. Would you care to elaborate on that at a non-detailed level? I will certainly try. Uh, okay. So yes, um, there uh, insulin is stored uh, in uh, the pancreas and the small secretory vesicles. When you eat, when you think about eating, in fact, you will dump some insulin into the bloodstream. When you think uh, about eating. When you smell a savory piece of bacon so when donut. You, uh, so any kind of uh, input that might, uh, I don't know what the, what would the term be. Uh, would it have something to do with satiety or Satiation is uh, sure. So, actual right. So, insulin actually acts on the level of the hypothalamus as a satiating hormone. So, and this is just an aside. Um, fructose, for instance, does not cause an insulin response. So, just fructose by itself, uh, and it's not as satiating as glucose would be, or another uh, thing that does actually increase insulin. But, for instance, you smell a donut, you look at a donut, insulin's going to go up, and it's just your. It's, preparing yourself for a meal, uh, right? So it's 
uh, head-generated uh, response uh, to, to a meal. Uh, there's another little squirt of insulin that occurs when food makes it down into your stomach, and then uh, another one finally uh, when it gets uh, into your small intestine. The, there's some prevailing wisdom. I don't even know if it's prevailing anymore, but certainly it's persistent in the gym industry, fitness industry, that um, carbohydrates make insulin go up, and insulin bad because insulin makes you store fat. It's like, well, it is true that insulin, you know, once it attaches to the receptor, allows for fat storage to occur at the level of the fat. That's true. But protein also causes an insulin spike. Uh, so if you, eat in, if you eat protein, it gets into the small intestine. This is besides the cephalic uh, insulin response, the one you got from smelling the food. Um, protein causes insulin to be dumped from those secretary vesicles in the uh, beta cells of the pancreas into the bloodstream. Um, that's called a monophasic response to eating. Um, carbohydrates, conversely, once that hits the small intestine, causes a biphasic response. Uh, so you get that initial dump of insulin and then you get another secondary dump afterwards in order to, it basically corrects for uh, uh, the load of sugar in the bloodstream. So people will incorrectly say all the time like, oh, my blood sugar went up and then my insulin, you know, tempered it or my blood sugar went way, way down, it's hypoglycemic. And, you know, these wide swings of blood sugar just don't tend to occur in non-diabetic people, right? You, you just think about it, if your blood sugar did widely swing, you'd have problems, right? right? <laughs> you'd be diabetic. Um, the interest, so then people will say, well, do you know which one spikes insulin more? Is it carbs? Or is it protein? And there's a few problems with that question. Problem number one: When do you just eat a carb-only or a protein-only meal? You know, almost never, right? Most meals are mixed, and and then there's fat to take on top of that. So you have a mixed meal, and then you're kind of throwing the whole thing. That question is is almost irrelevant since we eat things in combination almost all the time. Um, and then. <laughs> Some amino acids are more insulinogenic than others, and so the, on balance, what the take-home message is, if you're trying to um, not get your insulin levels to go up, just don't eat. That, that's, <laughs> that's the only option you have. It's the, and, 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 you know, people, people have this erroneous thought that if I keep insulin levels low, I'm going to lose body fat. And, but it's not the key. In fact, if you went super low carb, um, so you went low carbohydrate and your idea was, oh, I'm just limiting insulin production, right? That's my key to success. So people say, I'm going to become more insulin sensitive because there's less insulin. Well, well, actually, you become more resistant to insulin in the peripheral tissues. And it should make sense. Why? There are certain regions of the brain that will only run on glucose, right? And additionally, your body needs to maintain a certain level of sugar in the blood. Because if it drops below that, you go into a hypoglycemic coma. Your brain suffers as a result. Right. And then in a few minutes, you're, you're dead. So <laughs> your body has protective mechanisms to avoid that, one of which is to basically make all of your skeletal muscle tissue, your liver, other t organs that would normally use glucose if it was there in abundance or you didn't think that um, you were going to have to just maintain on what you have. Uh, it makes all those tissues resistant. It says, no, nope, not getting any. Not getting any. It's just going to be around for the brain and for the blood. Uh, blood. Um, so it's a kind of a misnomer when people say I'm going low carb and becoming more insulin sensitive. And it's like, and usually data that shows going low carb 
makes people more insulin sensitive is associated with weight loss, which should, should kind of make sense. Uh, what is insulin resistance? Insulin resistance is you don't have enough insulin being put into the body for the amount of insulin receptors you have. So that could be just, <laughs> you have too much tissue. <laughs> so if you lose body fat, uh, you know, the amount of tissue goes down, so you become more sensitive. Um, at any rate, it's a pretty complex, nuanced issue, well, which is why it sounds like a much more complicated scenario than I have been carrying around an explanation for in my mind for a long period of time. Uh, we'll, we'll have to write an article about it. I think that's a great idea, and sure. uh, let's get let's get some of this clarified because a lot of people are under the misconception that uh, uh, insulin insulin sensitivity uh, is pretty much entirely carbohydrate related and what you're saying is that that's not the case. No, it's more complicated. It's more, everything always is. <laughs> what about uh, uh, while we're talking about it, uh, another misconception that not so much the fitness industry but, but certainly the, uh, the medical community seems to be laboring under is uh, the idea that the ingestion of creatine um, and, you know, also at the same time uh, in the doctor's office, protein itself is hard on the kidneys. Yeah. Uh, I've, I have, uh, I've, I've gotten <clears throat> so tired of this, I don't know, you know, I just don't know what to, what to do anymore. It, it seems so transparently obvious that uh, a high-protein diet is not hard on the kidneys. I've never seen any evidence for that, and I've never seen... Uh, any problems with either myself or anybody else that eats a lot of protein, and I'm talking about 400 grams of protein a day. People don't have problems with, problems with their kidneys with, in relation to, to diets like that. Taking 20 grams of creatine a day doesn't yeah. seem to bother the kidneys either. What's, what's <laughs> going on here? Well, yeah, so I, uh, I'll address the creatine issue first and then go to the protein. <laughs> I actually did have a lady, uh, or I think, well, her or his name was Aaron with an E, and I think that's, I think that's a male that's or an a, era, female. No, that's girl. that's a female. Girls right. are Aaron, E R I N. Boys are Aaron, A A R O N. A A Ron. Okay. A A Ron. A Aaron. Or E Aaron. Right. So I think this was a female. At any rate, he or she, probably she. Let's say she. She sent me an email and said, "Hey, I'm an ER nurse." And uh, I was taking creatine and I got a blood draw, and my creatinine level was high. Oh, yes. And the, the doctor lost Didn't know the difference between creatine and creatinine. Well, so, yeah. Um, and, and so it actually is interesting. If you look in the literature, and the reason I know this because I actually wrote a paper about how the kidney responds to dietary creatine and its implication, its clinical implications. So if you, uh, the average human's uh, uh, creatinine level is a effective measurement of their muscle mass, right? And muscle mass, uh, and, and so, and then their kidney function by proxy. So okay, you, let's let's be specific now. Sure. What is creatinine? What creatinine, is the substance? It, creatinine. What is the substance? Uh, I forget offhand the actual amino acids. I got it here. So but it's it's a protein. Uh, yeah, it's a well, right. So it is a protein. Um, and then it is, we use it clinically to measure how the kidney is filtering. All right. So average how much muscle, is being secreted. 
Uh, right. And well, how much being cleared? Secreted, I'm sorry. Passing through the kidneys. Right, and being cleared. So, for instance, right. the average person's creatinine, based on the the uh, equation we always use, uh, is about one. So, if you look at somebody's basic metabolic panel, which is a lab test, and their serum creatinine is one or 0.9, we're like, oh, good. If it's a smaller, old, frail lady, it's 0. 0.6. We're like, it's good. If it's seven, you're like. Oh God! So this is the re the reference range is in the vicinity of whatever one. How and what units is that in? Uh, uh, milligrams per deciliter. Okay. Yeah, and so um, okay. if it's you know, if you know if it's three, we're like, oh my God, they're in acute renal failure, or you know they have acute uh, acute kidney injury, or an AKI is what they say in a hospital. And this nomenclature does change from time to time in different organizations. All right, but in the hospital, we just call it an AKI, whether it's correct or incorrect. That's just what we call it. At any rate, so, so, the, if you so came, creatinine clearance is a an indicator of uh, kidney function in terms of the what is called the the GFR, the glomerular filtration rate. Right. So a person with a normal GFR should have a creatinine level in the vicinity of one milligram per deciliter. Yep. Okay. Yep. More right. So, Erin said that you know her creatinine was elevated. And people said, "Oh, you got to get off creatine because this is the problem." And oh, you have kidney injury. So for, again, just like I said, if your serum creatinine level was two or three, I'd be I'd say, "Rip, hey, you may have a kidney injury." You know, if I was unaware of this data. Now, if I give you five milligram or five grams of creatine, right? Creatine monohydrate. Yes, specifically. sir. The and dietary eight, supplement. And eight hours later, I check a BMP on you to look at your creatinine levels. It's going to be doubled or tripled. Your creatinine levels will be three, two and a half, three. And on average, that's the experiment that we ran. On average, people who get creatine monohydrate, uh, you know, eight to 12 hours after ingestion, their creatinine levels will double or triple. All right. To what clinical significance is that? Zero. All right. So creatine. So explain why that would be. Is there so some chemical situation going on yes. between the metabolism of the creatine monohydrate that transforms it into creatinine, creatinine yes. over an right. acute phase. Yes. So there's, it just cyclizes. Creatine will cyclize into creatinine, which is going to raise creatinine levels. And in fact, what you will do if you're like, oh my God, these guys' kidneys are failing, what you would do then is check a urinary creatinine, which guess what? Would also be elevated. It shows that your GFR is just fine, all right? So the serum creatinine by itself on a person who uses dietary creatine is no longer a valid indicator of their kidney function. So and if their creatinine, uh, serum creatinine levels were elevated and their urinary creatinine levels were not, Right, that would tell then you. we would have an indicator of yes. of, of an AKI because now right. we've got inadequate uh, GFR to, to process mm -hmm. this out. But in other words, if you elevate creatine, then the normal response to that is a clearance. Yep. And if the clearance is taking place, that indicates that the system is normal. Yes, and so if there's a couple there's a couple more interesting points here. Interesting point number two, if you were to take something stupid like creatine ethyl ester or creatine, one of these other very more expensive and sexier sounding, you know, 
creatines. Mm -hmm. Creatine ethyl ester, for instance, at 12 hours after ingestion of a 5 gram dose, your serum creatinine levels will be close to 7. Six and a half was our average in our 24 subjects. All right. Okay, can you imagine what the ER docs face would look like when they see this result come back? You'd be in ICU. You'd they'd be wheel on, you upstairs to ICU. And you'd be on dialysis quicker than you were admitted because your kidneys are they're dead. Effectively, they're dead. All right. Um, and so then you wonder, well, how big of a problem is this? You know, Jordan, you're telling me that the serum creatinine level in a creatine user is not a valid proxy for their kidney function. That's exactly what I'm telling you. Well, is this a big problem? Like how many people even use creatine? Uh, well, it's funny that I should ask myself this question. <laughs> uh, so over 26% of new military recruits all right, are using creatine supplements. Uh, so we're talking, you know, hundreds of thousands of people uh, over. Yeah. Uh, 3% of American adults just nationwide, hundreds of thousands of people, right? So, you know, if, if you're looking, what is the, what is the, the, uh, the question or the, the uh, board's question that a medical provider would see, uh, it would be a younger, potentially competitive athlete who comes into the ER for whatever complaint. Um, they tell you they're using creatine and their serum creatinine level is three. You know, what's your next step in management? It's measure urinary creatinine to tell you that the kidney's okay or not. Right. But you can't, but it, it has no effect on kidney function, creatine. There's long-term data uh, that's been done. Uh, Portman um, et al., he's basically the creatine uh, guru, and he studied people using this stuff for 20 years. No effect on kidney functions measured by more precise methodology. So creatine, if someone says it messes with your kidneys, that, that just tells you, that's your litmus test to tell them they are, un, they are not qualified to have an opinion right. on creatine use in the kidney. Um, protein use in the kidney is a little more, a little more nuanced. So we're going to assume a few things. One, that nobody, ha somebody does not have pre-existing renal disease, right. okay, uh, or doesn't have any other sort of like congenital amino acid transporter defect. These are like very rare things that you would probably know if you had as an adult. All right, um, most of the sort of protein is harmful for the kidney. That sentiment comes from a few very old trials old studies in the 50s and then later on actually in the 80s. So in the 50s they were using military recruits who were dehydrated and who were taking uh, who would and their rations had a high level of dietary protein intake um, and so some of them would develop uh, a high uh, 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 sorry some evidence of um, renal damage based on the urea nitrogen uh, level. In the 80s it was shown that the person who eats high dietary protein required more water to clear this urea nitrogen. And so people said, it's the, kid the kidneys are being stressed or strained by this excess dietary protein load. Because you're asking them to clear more water. Right. And what it's been since shown... Isn't that kind of <laughs> what they're supposed to do? Right. So what it's, it's shown to be an adaptive... It's just an adaptive mechanism. Right. If you eat more protein, the kidneys are going to filter more protein. All right, and so the adapt adaptation occurs at the level of the kidney, and this is not a dangerous adaptation, it's just an adaptation to the stimulus. All right, and so you get more filtration that occurs at the level of the kidney. There's no excuse me, evidence to suggest that the kidney's function decreases or that this level of filtration is unsustainable and they're, you know, likely to harm the kidney. This is actually, so 
uh, increased filtration actually occurs with diabetics. They get into a hyperfiltration standpoint and there's some kidney damage. But this has not been shown to occur in people with high dietary protein intakes. And it even gets more interesting when you look at people with kidney failure. So if you ate a very low protein diet, which is what is advised for people with renal failure, does your mortality go down overall? Probably not. No. Probably not. Because you get so frail and weak, you just die. When you eat a very low protein diet, what do you do to the rest of the non-kidney compartment? Yeah, exactly. And so obviously this is multifactorial, yes. nuanced, and there's conflicting data. So I don't, you know, I'm not trying to sound like a nephrologist because I am not. I will say, however, that my knowledge on creatine's effect on the kidney uh, does supersede the nephrologist, though. So you can take that report to the bank. Um, the issue of protein's effect on the kidney, however, I feel like has been far overstated by the mainstream media medic- and medical professionals. Yes. So because what is that's the- what they do. Well, what is the upper limit of protein intake? And for that, it's just, well, there's no real upper limit. It's just at some point, it's no longer useful. Right. Right. At, at, at some, some point, point it's just, just calories. Yeah. And you're eating so much protein, okay, that you're, and protein is very satiating, all right, that you're effectively limiting your ability to eat other things. So if I have a 150 pound kid who needs to gain body weight, he's telling me he's eating 400 grams of protein a day, I'm going to say, hey, look, I appreciate the effort, gold star. But let's temper that back down to like 180 and just jack your carbs and fat up because you need that energy fuel to make your body weight go up. Because protein is a very – honestly, people will say, well, you'll just store protein as fat. I'm like, "Mm, I don't think so. Not very efficiently anyway. It's just very hard to do. It's so difficult to store extra protein as body fat that you just well, don't. Well, that's tend- a lot of uh, a lot of chemistry has to be done on a group of amino acids to turn them yep. into a group of lipids. Exactly, it's a and lot of it, chemistry. And, and uh, uh, they just enter these futile cycles where you're just burning energy to try to do something that can't be done, and it just you you don't do anything with it. So. It's hard to do to store as fat. It's more or less used as energy. It's just oxidized as fuel, right? So what would be the danger in eating, you know, 350 grams of protein a day? Well, the danger is that you do that every day. You get your body really good at oxidizing protein for fuel since it's making up a pretty substantial point part of your body fuel. And then you go on vacation. And on vacation, <laughs> you're eating 100 grams of protein a day. And guess what you're really good at doing still? oxidizing protein. And at that point, you may enter a slightly elevated catabolic state than you otherwise would be because you ate like a jackass previously. It's just, and so at the end of the day, how much protein does a person need? And you know, right around that one gram per pound of body weight is the, is the answer. If you're significantly higher or under that and you're not a special snowflake, right. i.e. vegan, i.e. Elderly, <laughs> you know, uh, or kidney disease, then okay, like, you know, you're probably messing up if you're not well, part of those. And you mentioned elderly. Uh, I think we could wrap this discussion up with uh, uh, a discussion of uh, uh, protein muscle synthesis sure. signaling by by dietary protein. What sure. is uh, uh, Talk to us about that. I know this is an area of interest of yours. Yeah, so muscle protein synthesis, uh, really deep rabbit hole, but surface level, there are multiple changes that occur as someone becomes less male. 
So just either in in utero or uh, or as we age and uh, the uh, in the physiological milieu changes based on hormones and other factors. So the absorption of protein from the small intestine into the bloodstream is effectively unchanged from a 65-year-old uh, and a 25-year-old. The sensitivity of the skeletal muscle to that protein, however, is decreased markedly in the elderly person. And this is thought to be due to blood flow as one factor, so decreased blood flow to the skeletal muscle tissue in the older person, which is why actually there's been some data suggesting that vasodilators and antihypertensive agents actually improve muscle protein synthesis rates in elderly people. Um, also the fact that their hormonal milieu is such that they do not get as big of a bump out of a given protein dose. So what 20 grams will do, 20 grams of protein will do in a younger person, the older person may need 35 or 40, and that's right. effectively what's been shown. Well, let's, let's clarify this then. Uh, it, it, therefore, what you're saying is that it is not so much that the absorption rate out of the gut and into the bloodstream is the yeah. significant thing that changes. It's that's not what the happens to the amino acid uh, load from the food bolus once it gets into the bloodstream in terms of its ability to tell the muscles that here we are to the rescue, build right. more okay. muscle tissue. The presence of the, of the amino acids in the blood actually have a signaling mechanism on muscle hypertrophy. Right. right. So the the analogy I like to use is that you and I are both at a concert. You and I are both seeing Earth, Wind, and Fire in Chicago. It's a fantastic concert. All right. The sound, this massive wall of sound that gets to me, comes through unabated, and I'm just enjoying my time. It's great. I get a nice response. And you, on the other hand, because you're older than I am, have to lean in or use your <laughs> or have to use. Uh, something that otherwise gets the sound to you uh, a little better. So the flow is disrupted. One of those. So the sound hasn't changed. Right. It's your ability to respond, receive the sound has changed. So same thing at the level of muscle. It's, your, it's not that the uh, amount or volume of, of protein that's made it to the muscle has changed. It's just that your response to that has changed. It doesn't get to the muscle uh, with as much gusto and the muscle the efficiency with which the muscle takes it in and builds new sarcomere is is reduced correct yep and uh, that's a function of testosterone that's a function of the autocrine uh, hormones autocrine just means a hormone produced locally that acts on the same the cell that it produced it um, the the autocrine and paracrine hormones at the level of the tissue it's all changed the blood flow is, is decreased in an older person, and uh, so they just need more protein. So, Rip, you know, let's say you and I weighed the same. If we were both 220, your protein requirements for a given day, you know, to optimize muscle protein synthesis, maybe 260, 250, 260, 270, and mine maybe 200 or, or, or less. And, you right. know, that doesn't make me or you better. I mean, obviously, I'm better, but... <laughs> well, you're young. <laughs> I don't I don't think you're nearly as handsome as I am. Well, not from the I don't front. think anyone would hold, hold that. But what, what's real important here for older people is that what is your doctor telling you about protein intake as you get older? 
That is in direct conflict with the <laughs> actual facts of what an older person's protein requirements are versus that of a younger person. A younger kid can get away with eating a pretty shitty diet and still do just fine. But the older we get, the more attention we have to pay to the, the, the amount of protein we're taking in and probably to the quality of that protein intake as well. Yeah. Uh, in other well, words, a 20-year-old vegan, for God's sakes, is not going to suffer from that eating disorder to the same extent that a 65-year-old vegan will suffer from that eating disorder. And, no. uh, but, uh, but if you asked at a seminar, if you said, hey, who needs more protein? An 18-year-old novice on the LP, right, who weighs 180 pounds, or a 65-year-old novice on an LP who also weighs 180 pounds? Right. What would people say? They say the 18-year-old. Sure. They've been conditioned, they think. This kid needs the protein. Well, that's actually... The kid's actually, trying to grow. Well, the older guy's trying to grow, too. And he needs and, more. And he needs more because he doesn't respond as well to what he is eating. Yep. So he has to have more and better in order to compensate yep. uh, for that difference in his ability to handle and benefit from his protein intake. How does, how does the amino acid, one of the branched-chain amino acids, leucine, uh, vary in terms of its protein fraction in intake as, as we, we change with age. Catabolic in Chicago. Thanks for writing. No, uh, so it's... <laughs> Chicago. So if we, if we give Rip a bunch of BCAAs, does he, does he need to eat less protein? Uh, no, no, so, okay. So can I, yeah, can the, I make up for protein levels by shifting more to BCAA supplements? Uh, that's kind of a nuanced one. Yeah. So, here, okay, here's the thing. So, BCAAs, uh, uh, leucine, valine, isoleucine. Right, so the deal is, in order to uh, fully respond to those at the level of the muscle, to have a full muscle protein synthesis response, okay? So thing one about the muscle protein synthesis response, it's threshold limited. That is, if you get a meal that supersedes that threshold, it pretty much goes 100%. It's almost an all or nothing thing, almost. Uh, effectively, you can goose it a little with a little extra leucine, a little bit. But that only occurs in the level, uh, in the, in the uh, context of having a complete amino, uh, a spectrum of amino acids present in the bloodstream. So if you just give BCAAs to a fasting person, they're not going to have all the extra amino acids, the essential amino acids floating around necessary for that muscle protein synthesis response. So if you said Rip, Rip's going to eat 100 grams of protein a day and then just pile on BCAAs all day, I think that's, you know, that's a compromised situation compared to if you were saying, well, he's going to eat the 200 grams of protein like you, but then add a bunch of BCAAs. That's a different scenario. See what I'm saying? At some point, the 100 grams of protein doesn't dump enough amino, essential amino acids into the system to allow the full uh, uh, muscle protein synthesis response to occur. Because the, right? full, the full response involves more than just leucine, isoleucine, basically. Exactly. Okay. Now, your daily leucine intake at 260 or 270 grams of protein a day is going to be higher than mine. That's true. Probably. To, uh, you, you, just because you're eating more protein. Um, and, and to the effect that that particular variable matters, so daily leucine intake, it doesn't seem to matter outside of every meal you get, a person gets, you know, this like four grams of leucine per meal, three to four grams of leucine per meal. 
So if you eat five times a day, spread out three to five hours between, uh, you know, you need a total of, uh, uh, you know, we'll call it 20 grams of leucine a day. Having 30 grams of leucine a day doesn't change your life. Um, but having less than that tells me that at least one of those meals in there was sub substandard for generating a muscle protein synthesis response. Right. And, you, and you may have missed it if it was, so, if it was you know, non-existent. Um, so I know people on the board are going to be, they're really going to, you know, kick my ass about this and say, well, I thought you said that 220 grams of protein was enough for most adults. I'm like, I mean, yeah, it is, but you know, different cases are going to require different numbers. So I just used this example with you, Rip. Um, if you said that you were, let's say that you were gaining weight, so your total calorie intake is going to go up, right? So I'm going to have to give you more protein to account for the trace proteins that are coming in your food, right? If your carbohydrate intake goes way up, well, your protein intake is now going to be eaten up more by your carbohydrates and fats than just protein alone. So if it started out, it was 240 grams, then maybe I have to bump it up to 250 to allow for the extra, the trace protein is not really helping you out when it comes to generating that muscle protein synthesis response. So it's, it's kind of complicated, but then people, I generally feel like the people asking these questions in general don't need to be asking these questions. Eating already a gram per pound of body weight protein, you don't need to know more than that, you right. know? The old it's, advice, 2.2 gram per kilo of body weight is just, that's, you know, one gram per pound of body weight is just, you know, that, that advice has been around about 40 years and it makes perfect sense. Yeah, I mean, if it's 1.1, if it's 1.2, if it's 0.9, whatever the perfect magic number is, is going to depend on what's your total calorie intake, what, how old are you, how vegan are you, how male are you. And, and so it's going to change. And I think trying to have a hard recommendation is difficult, uh, but you don't have to make yourself a special snowflake either. Right. By the, so as a general rule, it's, it's hard to eat too much protein. Yep. And the older you get, the more you probably need to try to eat too much protein. Sure. And uh, I know this flies in the face of the conventional wisdom, but nonetheless, it is true. Sure. So thanks for being with us uh, again, Jordan. Uh, appreciate his valuable time. And thank you for joining us on the podcast. We'll see you next time.